Welcome to Sovereign Grace. You will need your Bibles this morning as we're going to be in Genesis chapter 20. We're looking at the whole chapter today. If you will, turn with us to Genesis 20. We'll be reading from verse 1 on down through verse 18. I want to remind you as we come to this text and read it, this is the second place in the story of Abraham where he is going to come to a city and encourage his wife to tell a half-truth about the nature of their relationship due to fear of what will happen to him from the king of that city. This is the second time that's happened. The first time was just after God made promises to him in Genesis 12. And just after that happened, there's a famine in the land, and Abraham goes down to Egypt. And he and Sarah perpetrate this half-truth, this lie upon Pharaoh, and the Lord intervenes and sends them out with much wealth, and they head for the promised land. And that's really focusing us on the promise of the land. Now in Genesis 20, Abraham is headed again. He's in the promised land, but now headed south to the area of the Philistines. And he's going to pull this same stunt with the king of Gerar. Just so you're aware, this time, we're a bit more focused on the promise of the seed rather than the land, the promise of the potential threat to the seed of the woman who's coming through Abraham and Sarah. So look with me at Genesis 20, start reading in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not Let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, 
She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his blessing as we consider it. Father, we do ask that we would hear your word for what it is, your word. That we would hear the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to us by his spirit in your word through a humble servant. We pray that we would understand the restraining grace that you showed to Abimelech and the abundant blessing, grace that you showed to Abraham and to the nations through him. We recognize our own fickleness in faith, our own times of weakness in believing you. And we pray that we would be encouraged by your word and your kindness to us in the face of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to look at our text really in two movements today. I want to consider first, in Genesis 21 through 7, I want to consider that the Lord restrained Abimelech from sin against God's people. The Lord restrained Abimelech from sin against God's people. So I want to look at that in the first seven verses. In other words, our topic, if you will, might be the Lord's restraining grace. Secondly, I want to consider in chapter 20, verses 8 through 18, that the Lord blessed Abraham in spite of his fickle faith and blessed the nations through him. He blessed Abraham in spite of this kind of weak display of faith and then blessed the nations through him. In other words, I want to focus really on the Lord's saving grace toward Abraham, his abundant grace toward his people. So that's what we're going to consider very simply. The Lord restrained Abimelech from sin against God's people. That's our first point. The Lord restrained Abimelech from sin against God's people. Look with me at Genesis 20, verses 1 through 2, and we'll grab some context here. From there, I just want to stop for a second. From there. That's an interesting way to start the text, isn't it? In other words, you know that you're connected to what's just come before. What has just come before? From there. From where? From the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did I say from the area of Sodom and Gomorrah? That's where Abraham had just been. If you remember, Sodom and Gomorrah are given over to wickedness. Abraham's nephew, Lot, a member of Abraham's household, is there in Sodom. And Abraham prays that God would deliver him. And Abraham sees his prayers answered. God brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in a supernatural fashion. 
And God, in a supernatural fashion, saves Lot. Brings him out of Sodom and Gomorrah at the hand of two angels. These aren't the kinds of things you ordinarily see. But Abraham did. And Abraham sees the Lord keep his promise to both save his nephew and to judge these wicked cities. He looks upon that scene. After looking upon that scene, here's where we pick up. From there. You understand the context of this scene? From coming right out of that scene, out of that event, in which he's seen the mighty power of God and regional judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the mighty grace of God and the salvation of Lot at the hand of two angels. Coming out of that scene, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. And lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. This is the area of the Philistines. It's in the southern part of Canaan, where the Philistines dwelled. And Abraham, we're told, is sojourning there. That's a good sign for Abraham. He understands he's a sojourner in the land, and he continues to sojourn there. However, not all goes well. And I think it's important that I stop for a second and just state this as we look at the next part. A lot of times we read these narratives and we imagine that the Bible is a story of men who are pure heroes or men who are pure villains. Now there is a pure hero. His name is Jesus Christ. And there are some pure villains, namely someone like Satan. However, we need to be really clear that even among God's people, those who the Bible referred to as righteous by faith, they are a mixed bag of both morality and immorality, faith and fickleness. They struggle. In a variety of ways. And the Bible is not afraid to let you see the reality of its people. It's not afraid to tell you. But sometimes we can read biographies where it's like, you get to the end of it and you think, did this man sin? The Bible doesn't give you that kind of biography. It tells you the truth about people. And so here we are. Look at verse 2. And Abraham... Though everything is looking good for Abraham so far, now it's not so much. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Our text this morning is a bit shocking. You kind of read it and think, behold the fickleness of faith. Abraham just witnessed God's judgment and deliverance at Sodom. He literally just witnessed the Lord answering his prayers and remembering his promises as the Lord judged Sodom and saved Lot. And at the first sign of potential problems, Abraham runs to sin. He leans on his own understanding. He decides to be wise in his own eyes. He trusts in the plans of men rather than the promise and protection of God. To press the tension a bit further... Understand that this story happens in the context of Genesis 12 through 20. 
Abraham was delivered from Egypt by God when he tried this before in Genesis 12. And this is not the first time Abraham has come up against foreign kings. In Genesis 14, he comes up against a series of foreign kings. And by God's grace, providence, kindness, defeats them all. So his continued lack of trust in the Lord's promises and protection feels a bit staggering here. Now let's consider Abimelech's dream. Let's look at his dream. Verse 3 through 7. Look there. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. And you'll notice as you read the Old Testament, God seems to come to pagans like this in dreams by night in the Old Testament stories. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. We're getting this emphasis from Moses because he wants you to understand that Isaac in no way is the seed of some other man than Abraham. Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Here's what Abimelech's clearly saying. Listen, I have not slept with her. I took her thinking... She wasn't married. They both lied to me. Now, I just want to make a quick note. It's still not okay to forcibly take a woman from someone's family. You understand that? So he goes on, verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. Now notice this phrase. And it was I who kept you from sinning against her. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. It's like, I didn't even touch her. I was lied to. I didn't even touch her. And he's like, I did that. I prevented you from that. Verse 7, now then, return to the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return to her, Know that you shall surely die, you and all yours. It's an interesting passage because Abimelech seems in many ways to be a fairly decent king. He cares for his people, his own people, you'll see that. He did take a woman from her family involuntarily. With that said, he was not aware she was married. But note the emphasis here. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. The Lord is referencing his, if you will, restraining grace. He's providentially at work restraining Abimelech. The Lord graciously kept Abimelech from sinning against the Lord's prophet, Abraham is called a prophet. He is a man who speaks with God and for God. He's a federal head of God's people at the time. And the Lord has restrained Abimelech from sinning against the Lord and therefore against his people as well in this scene. It's interesting, just as a kind of aside, that Abraham's being called a prophet in the same scene in which Abraham's being demonstrated to be a liar. It's, it's the grace of God 
to Abraham here. Sovereign grace, it's important that we understand that the Lord does restrain the unbelieving world in a number of ways from being as wicked as they can be. When we talk about total depravity or maybe better radical depravity, we're saying that people are depraved at the very root. We're saying that all of their faculties have been corrupted by sin, that they're guilty in Adam. We are not saying that every man in the world is as wicked as he can be. That's not what we're saying. In fact, the Lord often restrains the unbelieving world in a number of ways from being as wicked as they can be. And it is when the Lord turns us over to our sin in wrath that we start to see ourselves become as wicked as we can be as a people. We must pray to the Lord to ask him to restrain the hand of the wicked against his people. We must ask him for that. Children, you live in a world where your government is unjust in many regards. There's a lot of things that are just in our government, but much that is unjust. And you will suffer injustices at the hands of evil men. How will you handle that? How should you handle that? You should pray. You should pray. You should call out to the Lord for justice and mercy. Sovereign grace, I encourage you, learn the Psalms. Even the imprecatory Psalms. You know what the imprecatory Psalms are? These ones where David or another psalmist is praying for curses upon their enemies. Learn them, teach them to your children, sing them, pray them. They teach us how to give voice to injustice and wickedness around us. The Lord promises to uphold his people against the devices of the wicked. And we need to hold on to that truth. Yes, the Lord's people should try to wisely strategize. You know, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. We should work against evil. We should work against evil people and unjust deeds. But above all else, we should be like Jesus who entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Thus we should pray. We should see God's people asking the Lord for justice in the Psalms. And we should pray with them. They ask For the Lord to restrain evildoers. Listen to Psalm 109. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent. Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. Speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate. And attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I, notice, I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good. And they reward me hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. You hear what he's doing here? 
We ought to pray in this manner. We ought to trust the Lord to deliver justice, to restrain evildoers, and to protect his people. Sovereign Grace, pray for your governing authorities. Pray that they would be just. Pray against the works of the evil one and those who walk in his path. Pray the Lord protects us from evil deeds. Pray for that. Let me carry this a step further for us. The Lord often restrains graciously the sin of the unbelievers, but he also often graciously restrains us from sin. We are so often like Asaph when he says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Almost, Asaph's going to say. But then the Lord caught me. He restrained me. And he'll go on to explain why. When by the grace of God we are not given to particular sins, or when we begin down a sinful path that the Lord stops short, we should be thankful to the Lord for his grace. We should be able to say, when we see that same wickedness in others' lives, We should be able to say, but by the grace of God go I. The Lord graciously restrains us in so many ways from so much sin, and we should give thanks. We should give thanks. I want to make one additional point here. In Genesis 20 and verse 7, he makes the statement the Lord does, for he, Abraham, is a prophet. For he is a prophet. Abraham in many ways plays the role of prophet, priest, and king. He's a prophet in that he speaks with God and God speaks with him. He is playing the role of prophet when he prays for the blessing of Abimelech at the end of this passage. And the Lord is pointing out that it is particularly grievous when you sin against those he's anointed for this kind of office. We need to be wary not to speak evil of the emissaries of God. Those who are appointed by God. The Lord always protected his prophets in scripture. You'll hear about it, for example, in Psalm 105.15. A text that gets much abused, but that has to do with God's prophets and the people speaking against them. Saying, touch not my anointed ones. Now listen, do my prophets no harm. This is why it was so wicked when Israel would not listen to the prophets. They're condemned in Isaiah or Jeremiah or some of these, for not listening to the prophets. That God had sent. They're condemned for persecuting and killing those prophets. These men were carrying forth the word of God. And as the world killed them. Just as the world killed them. So the world killed the word of God incarnate. The prophet. The anointed one. The Messiah. And what's the warning That Jesus gives with regard to that. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. He says, woe unto those who will not listen to God's prophets and who instead persecute them and put them to death. May the Lord restrain us from speaking against his word or from plotting against those or lying against those who deliver his word. Second movement, 
The Lord blessed Abraham in spite of his weak faith. The Lord blessed Abraham in spite of his weak faith and blessed the nations through him. Talk about God's abundant saving grace. Look at verse 8 through 10. Genesis 28 through 10. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? You have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Now we need to notice that Abraham is in sin here. He's not trusting the Lord. The Lord had delivered him from Pharaoh, Genesis 12. The Lord had led him in conquest over foreign kings, Genesis 14. The Lord had appeared to him in visions and spoken with him, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. The Lord remembered Abraham and saved his nephew Lot from the judgment of the wicked people of Sodom and had angels appear to him, Genesis 18 and 19. Yet Abraham still fails to trust the Lord. But before we become too hard on Abraham, because it's real easy just to come down on him, it might be worth considering two of his justifications for his sin. You may have tried out these justifications yourself in a different fashion. Here's his first justification. You do not fear the Lord, so I can't trust you. You don't fear the Lord, so I can't trust you. Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Is Abraham right to conclude that the absence of the fear of the Lord means that a number of evil acts could be committed by these Philistines? Yes. That is a biblically sound conclusion. Proverbs 16, 16. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And listen, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Notice, by the fear of the Lord that one turns away from evil. One of the problems with sinful man is that there's no fear of God before his eyes. Romans 3.18. Here's the fact. If you do not fear the Lord, then there is little keeping you from grasping for what you want. If you can find some way to take what you want in this life, and you can see a way around consequences, and you have no fear of eternal consequences before a holy God, then you will not turn away from evil. Unless the Lord restrains you. You just will not. Children, you're being raised in a Christian church with the privilege of a Christian family. I assume you're learning Bible and doctrine, and I'm hoping that your parents are modeling godliness for you. I exhort you to listen to the word of God. Do not harden your hearts as the Spirit speaks. You must listen to him and fear the Lord. You must trust in Jesus Christ. And sovereign grace, we need to understand, God is not an idol whom you appease with particular behaviors and from whom you then get stuff. It's not what God is. He's not a God from whom you accept the words you like and discard the words you don't. He is the king of glory. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. 
He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if you do not fear him, if the thought of his awesome holiness does not cause you, like Isaiah, to come unraveled as you consider your sin, then there's not a proper fear of God before your eyes. Now, as his people, it's true that we fear him as we fear a good father. But if you think this causes you to take your sin lightly, then you're failing to understand our Lord, his holiness, and his grace. You're failing to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. The grace of God, the Spirit of God, causes us to see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. And when you see Christ and his work on the cross, in seeing his work there, you know more clearly the sinfulness of your sin. In seeing who he is and what he's done for you, you see more clearly your sin. And I'm brought ever more, and you should be brought ever more to repentance, to faith, to gratitude for mercy, to walking in the fear of the Lord. Listen, if you're learning about the person of Christ and the work of Christ, and you're not growing in the fear of the Lord, and you're not growing in gratitude for grace, you're not learning it right. Now, the problem with Abraham's justification regarding Abimelech is that Abraham has forgotten that the Lord restrains sin. The Lord had put some fear of himself into Abimelech and his men. We see that Abimelech and his men have some fear of the Lord. Yet Abraham did not trust the Lord to deal with his adversaries. So Abraham sought a deceitful path to dealing with them. And friends, we should trust the Lord to vindicate us to protect us, to care for us. We should not act sinfully to protect ourselves or to vindicate ourselves. But that's precisely what Abraham does. Note Abraham's second justification. Let's consider a second justification. Look at Genesis 20, verses 12 and 13. Besides, you know, you're going to kill me. Besides, here he goes, she is indeed my sister, Sarah is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, scholars debate over this. Calvin makes the argument that Sarah is actually his cousin. There are some reasons for that in the end of Genesis 11. Most scholars, the majority of them, seem to see her as his half-sister, but it depends on the era to some degree that you're reading commentators. The point is, there's some way in which it's true that Abraham is saying she's my sister. There's some way in which that statement is true. That's what he's saying. I'm not telling you a complete lie. Some of this is true. Goes on to say this. Verse 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. Remember, God calls him to leave and go toward Canaan. This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he's my brother. Do you hear that? Here's what he's saying. Look, don't take it personally. This is what I do everywhere. I'm always lying to kings in different places. Don't feel bad. (laughs) Technically, she is my sister. And hey, this is just kind of my thing. 
I need to do this, by the way, in Abraham's mind. Why? Because there's a real problem with wife stealing in his country. You can tell that. Everywhere it goes, some king wants to take his woman. This is a real problem in that time and that place. So he thinks, here's how I'm going to resolve it. I'm going to lie. Friends, if your MO, your way of handling life is to use half-truths and to lie, then we need to repent. I don't know if J.I. Packer was quoting somebody or if it was his original material, but I do remember reading it in J.I. Packer, so I'll cite him. He once said, a half-truth that masquerades as the whole truth is a complete lie. When you intentionally remove the context or leave out information so that you can deceive someone and get your way, you're participating in sin. This is precisely what Abraham did to Abimelech. Now we can sympathize with Abraham because we all know what it's like to lose some trust in the Lord in the face of circumstances we cannot control. Abraham wasn't sure what Abimelech would be like. Abraham knew that wife stealing was a common practice among the pagans of his day, and they might not only steal his wife, but kill him. So he had a justification. She'll get stolen anyway, but in this case, I'll stay alive. So Abraham assumed he needed to protect himself from Abimelech because of what he thought Abimelech was likely capable of. Thus he told Abimelech a half-truth, she is my sister, that left out necessary context, she is my wife. And thus it was a lie. Sovereign Grace, we need to be truth-tellers. We have to trust the Lord and not deceive people for self-protection as Abraham does here. Please observe how weak Abraham's faith is regarding the promised seed. God has promised him a child. He's struggling to trust that. It's not that Abraham doesn't trust the promise. It's that his faith is fickle and he struggles with weakness. Abraham trusted his own plans rather than the Lord's promise and provision and protection. And we can see what the Lord has done so far in Abraham's life, can't we? We're going to see in the next chapter what the Lord continues to do in his life. Yet in spite of all of God's blessing all around, Abraham struggled to trust the Lord. This can be hard. It's easy to be like Abraham. It's easy to look at this text and condemn Abraham, but you haven't faced a foreign king who's likely to steal your wife and kill you for her. Yes, God's promise is good to us in Christ, but as we wait... As we see the wicked prosper, we struggle to trust God's promises and we search for ways to grasp for it ourselves. That's why Asaph prays this way in Psalm 73. Listen to what he says. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Things were working out for the wicked and not for me. So how does God help Asaph resist the slipping of his feet? Well, Asaph tells us as he went into God's sanctuary, 
for worship. And God caused him to consider the eternal end of the wicked and his own eternal end. He was kept from slipping. Listen to what he says. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Even though the wicked prosper and I suffer, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And herein is the problem with both of Abraham's justifications for his sin. Neither of them are Abraham, if you will, entering the Lord's sanctuary, the presence of the Lord, and considering the end of all things. Abraham's justifications were set on the here and now. I will protect my own life. I will do what's good for me in the moment. In sovereign grace, so are our justifications for sin. Now with all that said, notice what happens even in the face of Abraham's foolishness. Look at verses 14 through 18. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. This is pretty much a mimic of what happens with Pharaoh in Egypt. Enrich Abraham even more. After Abraham's sin against him, he's enriched by him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So he gathers more land. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother. <laughs> you notice that? <laughs> Sorry. A thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you were vindicated. Listen, the bride price, scholars say in the ancient Near East at this period, was about 50 pieces of silver. That was rich as a bride price. Here we're talking a thousand pieces of silver. And when he says, in the eyes of all, your innocence in the eyes of all, it's that the thousands of pieces of silver essentially cover the eyes of all. It's a way of saying, I have so blessed you that everyone will know, everyone will be clear that when they see how I've enriched you, that you were wholly innocent. It will be unmistakable in the eyes of the world. No one will question your innocence, Sarah. Goes on, verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female servants, so they bore children. Apparently the Lord had closed their wombs, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham is blessed, as God promised, and Abraham is a blessing to Gentile nations. It's really stunning 
Abraham sins and he's still blessed. Why? Because the Lord's good purposes for Abraham are inviolable. Even when his own faith fails for a period of time. Friends, it's such good news for you and for me. We are not defined by our weakest moment. We are not summed up in our greatest sin. We're defined by God's great love and grace for us in Christ. I've been thinking much about the Apostle Peter the last few weeks. It's really hard for me to get past sometimes the story of Peter. I don't know if you've paid attention. The Gospel of Matthew I love because Peter is so up and down in the same scenes. Like one scene, he's blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by God. And in the next scene, he's like, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, right? Like, you know, (laughs) that sounds like the Christian life in many cases. But here goes Peter throughout life as Jesus' closest companion. If they had BFFs, that would be Jesus and Peter. Silly term, I know. They were the closest companions. Peter and then John. Peter saw Jesus do miracles. He heard Jesus teach. It was revealed to him by the Spirit that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter saw Jesus transfigured. Peter saw Jesus raise the dead. Peter heard Jesus teach him that he would suffer at the hands of lawless men in Jerusalem, that he'd be scourged and that he'd die on the cross, rise from the dead the third day. Peter was next to him throughout this whole ministry. Peter's the man who promised to stay true to Jesus to the end. Remember at the Lord's Supper? The hand of him who betrays me is at the table. Peter's like, it's not me. I would never betray you. I would never deny you. Never. And yet, on the most difficult day of Jesus' life, as he's being scourged and falsely accused, Peter denies him. Peter swears oaths against himself as he denies him. And Luke tells us that the moment of Peter's third denial, he just says this, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter left and wept bitterly. Herein is the low point of Peter's walk with Jesus. Here's a deeply faithless moment in Peter's life. And yet after his resurrection, Jesus went looking for Peter and restored Peter. But let me point out one more scene in that whole looking for and restoring Peter that just kind of thrills me and throws me at the same time. Jesus appeared to the disciples as they were fishing. Do you remember this? John 21. They're out in a boat and Jesus comes on the shore. And John realizes it's Jesus and he says to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Peter heard that, John tells us Peter's response. He threw himself into the sea. Why? 
He was doing everything he could to get to Jesus as quickly as he could. He it's the Lord. Casts himself into the sea. I want to get to him as fast as I can. In spite of his denials, in spite of his sin, in spite of his weak faith, Peter knew that God's grace in Christ abounds far more than his sin. And he threw himself in the sea to get to Jesus, to get to the grace of God in flesh as quickly as he could. Friends, in the face of your sin, are you, if you will, casting yourself into the sea to get to Christ as quick as you can? Christ died for your sin. If you're in him, you're forgiven. And as those who are forgiven and washed clean and declared righteous, those who are being renewed day by day by the grace of God, you are not. You are not your weakest and most wicked moment. You are God's son, his heir in Christ. Puritan Richard Sibbs famously wrote, we have this for a foundation truth. What is the foundation truth we have? That there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Think on that. Dwell on that. Glory in that. God's grace abounds to sinners in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ and his grace to us. What we know in him because of the great gift of love and your giving him to us and for us. We recognize that we are sinners, that our faith fails, that it's fickle, that we are often weak, that our eyes are not often set enough on heaven where Christ is seated, but so often set here on the things of this world. And as a result, we confess that we often scheme and do all that we can to make a way for ourselves without trusting you, without seeking you in prayer, without knowing that you are a good father who gives good gifts to his children, whom we can trust. Cause us to trust you fully, to walk with you in godliness, renew us more and more by the working of your spirit so that we're like Jesus. Cause those who do not trust in Christ to repent of their sins, to turn from their worldliness and their wicked ways and look to Christ in faith and be saved. May we live each day reminded of the great grace and mercy we know in Christ with gratitude, thanksgiving, and growing faith and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.